Episode 34 of the Photon Podcast, November 6th, Victor India, the expeditions with KF7IJZ and more coming up. AmateurRadio15.com presents Photon, the other ham radio podcast, sponsored by Main Trading Company. Find them online at mtcradio.com. Now, here's your host, Kale Nelson, K4CDN. And it's episode 34. Welcome in. I'm Kale. I'm Kale, and my call is Kilo 4 Charlie Delta November, K4CDN. I'm a general class licensee. I reside in upstate South Carolina. Been doing this podcast for the new guy for a little bit over a year, I guess maybe a year and a couple of months now. Uh, yeah, a year and two months, so that makes sense. Uh, anyway, we're here every other week doing this show, and we appreciate you coming back every single time. Now, this may be your first time, so welcome. Let us roll out the red carpet and bring you in here, pat you on the back, and, and give you a donut or something. Just kidding. No, this isn't your typical ham club meeting or anything like that. This is a lot of fun. We do this every other week. We do it for the new guy. We, we do it for the folks who are just thinking about getting into the hobby. Even for you guys that have been around longer than I have, living and licensed, uh, we're, we're doing it for you as well. So this, this is a great podcast about the great hobby of amateur radio, and it's so big, it just takes a lot of us to get it done. Speaking of getting it done this time, Jeremy, KF7IJZ, will be along in a couple of minutes with November 6th, Victor India. His name is Marty, and they're going to be chatting about de-expeditions, so make sure you stick around for that. This portion of the Photon Podcast is brought to you by ICOM America's IC2300 65-watt 2-meter mil-spec mobile transceiver. The IC2300 features a loud 4.5-watt speaker output, dual-color display, 200 memory channels, weather monitoring alert, and multiple power outputs up to 65 watts. You can find the ICOM IC2300 2-meter mobile rig at mtcradio.com mtcradio.com So in case you missed it, and I'm still waiting for Dave Jackson to get me my little in case you missed it thing done. Uh, that was my version of what I'm looking for Dave to do. In case you missed it, I was recently interviewed on a different podcast. Actually, it's the Prepper Recon podcast. It's a guy named Mark Goodwin, and uh, Mark does a lot of, uh, he does a lot of things in the preparedness community. He comes at uh, preparedness from a Christian perspective. He's also an author, written a couple of cool books. As a matter of fact, if you're into dystopian fiction, as am I. And uh, he called and said, hey, man, I'd like to have you on the show. Talk to us about amateur radio for preparedness. How do we get into amateur radio? Uh, how hard is it? Well, of course, that's right down our alley since we are into the new guy's stuff for ham radio. Here's a little clip, and if you want to hear more, you can check out the link in the show notes at the Photime Podcast website. In, in an in event situation, all bets are off. Well, okay, that's fine, but if you still don't know how to use it now, you won't know how to use it then. Uh, it's not hard to pass the test. I mean, there's no Morse code. There's no CW anymore. It, it turns out this it's a really fun hobby. It's more than just, you know, Piling, piling walkie-talkies in your bag waiting on the world to end. So our friend George came through again. George introduced us to a, a new show friend here, uh, Marty Wolf. His call is November 6th, Victor India. Marty's been licensed for a, a long time. Okay, let's just be truthful about it, Marty. You've been doing de-expedition since I was in grade school. So Marty's been doing this a while, and uh, he's got a lot to share with us. Now, we, you know, we've covered de-expeditions in the past. Uh, we bring Marty back in to really, uh, really dig deep into this thing. Marty is still getting it and having a great time. 
and we're going to let him and Jeremy tell us all about D-Expeditions. Jeremy, you guys take it away. All right, thanks, Kale. Folks, we've covered D-Expeditions on this show before way back in Episode 7 with Art Blank, WA7NB, but it's been a while, and uh, we've run across another wonderful guest on this topic. I'd like to introduce Marty Wall, November 6th, Victor India. Uh, from California, the Vice Director of the Southwestern Division of the ARRL. Marty, how are you? Just great, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being on. So we've covered de-expeditions a little bit in the past in, uh, you know, talking about things like activating Midway Island, and we've also even covered them on a smaller scale, um, talking about activating other islands off of uh, Florida that are kind of rare. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what type of de-expeditions do you participate in? Well, you know, you've heard and read about some of these very large, complex expeditions where you have to lease an icebreaker, and, and uh, it you know it takes a, a, a literal a world of uh, ham support to get the thing off the ground. Uh, we're not nearly that adventurous. Uh, pretty much every place we go is fly-in on commercial airline. And we tend to concentrate on contests simply because there's so much activity and uh, we can get a lot of uh, contacts in in a fairly short period of time. So that's, that's mainly what we've been doing, and this has been going on since 1980. Oh, wow. So you're, you're kind of hinting at, do you actually have kind of an established de-expedition group that you participate with? Uh, yes. Uh, I actually started uh, solo um, uh, when I got an invitation uh, from uh, Randy KH6XX, who certainly had the biggest station in the Pacific at the time um, over on the north shore of Oahu. Uh, a friend, uh, uh, Neil Sulmeyer, AE6E, now W4EA, had talked to Randy about coming over and doing a single-band operation. And they asked, well, could I, well, I'm asked if I could possibly come and do one, too. So I think Neil ran uh, 15 or 20 meters, and I ran 10 meters. This was in the CQ Worldwide CW contest. And Randy had multiple towers and, and so on. So we were able to operate two different bands, each as a single operator. Uh, after that, our Southern California Contest Club got together and uh, worked with the uh, uh, a club in uh, in uh, Mexico, the the Baja Club, and we basically I think it was a Tijuana Radio Club, and we we basically went down to uh, just across the border, bringing tower trailers and so on, and so that uh, that was a fun operation, uh, another CW effort, uh, and uh, then I got into a group that. Uh, uh, went down to uh, French Guiana and also to uh, uh, the Virgin Islands. Uh, several members of that group went on to become the famous Voodoo's who uh, went to West Africa every year and activated a different country. And they've got, a, they've got some really amazing stories, and, and they're really very talented operators. Uh, but the first time I went with the current group was in 1986 when we uh, were able to go to Jordan. And uh, from there, I have gone with that group to probably 15 countries. Wow. 15 countries over the last how many years? Uh, well, uh, 20, uh, 22, 23 years. Uh, I think I've hit a total of 17 outside the United States. Wow. You've racked up the frequent flyer miles. Uh, yes, indeed. I'll actually, I've used frequent flyer miles in some of the cases. <laughs> few of those trips were uh, low or no cost in terms of airline. Wow. 
Well, let's pause on the de-expedition a little bit more and, and kind of go back to uh, tell us a little bit about how you got started in amateur radio, because I know you've been licensed now for almost 50 years. Yes, uh, we're coming up on that in about a year and a half. Um, well, I had friends in uh, high school who were hams, and they encouraged me to give it a try. And I guess it really started back when I was in the Boy Scouts as a grade schooler. Um, the uh, they have the Scouts have their what they call field days, very much like our field days, uh, where you're out at some remote location. Except these are competitions among uh, troops and councils and so on. And you know you do the knot tying and all the other things, the obstacle courses. But there's also a signaling competition, and uh, I was chosen to be the receiver in the signaling competition, which was Morse code using flags. You know, a figure eight dipped to the right is a dit, a figure eight dipped to the left is a da. And another fellow was the sender. My dad taught me the code, even though he wasn't a practitioner himself. He took the time to teach it to me. And uh, we used to win every year. So uh, it was a blast doing that. And uh, when it came time to uh, uh, try for my amateur license, uh, when I was 16, I went ahead and, and uh, managed to get through that. And, and of course, uh, back then, whenever you started, this was in the 60s, uh, you started as a novice and you were on only CW for a year. So I managed to hone those CW skills and get to the point where I could, uh, I could pass the general exam uh, written and the, uh, and the Morse code. And it went on from there. So that was, that was the early start. The other thing that I think really got me going was very quickly I joined a club. This was an unusual club. Most of them are adults with you know a few kids in them. This was all kids. There were no adults in this club called the West Valley Amateur Radio Club. No relation to the one in Arizona. This was in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles. And it was a bunch of gung-ho guys and uh, some of them, uh, many of them, if not most, have gone on to not only stay in ham radio but really succeed and excel in some area. Uh, you may have heard of uh, Larry Tyree and 6TR at the CQ Contest Hall of Fame. He was uh, one of our operators. Uh, Bob Wilson, N6TV, kind of a guru for a lot of the uh, uh, contest logging and, uh, and other software-related matters, and a de-expeditioner himself. He was our 45-word-a-minute novice in field day. We went out and did field day every year. And, <laughs> and, and uh, we picked our classes 4A, which was pretty competitive, four transmitters in the field. We entered that as a club six years and this is, you know, pooling our pooling our resources to go down and rent a generator for the weekend and, and so on. And uh, out of those six years, we came in second in the country in 4A one year and first in the country the other five. Wow. So this was a serious group of kids. And if you can imagine a bunch of high school guys on a hot June day on a mountain uh, and no beer. We weren't there to drink. <laughs> we were there to operate. <laughs> That might be a, a rarity uh, where you grew up in the country. So as you uh, kind of progress through your your uh, career in amateur radio, if you will, um, I'm kind of guessing that you might have been or might still prefer CW. But I mean, did, were you strictly a CW guy? Did you do any phone work? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I was uh, I was an equal opportunity ham. I, I did both uh, phone and CW. Uh, I never did develop the really high speed. I got friends who can sit there and run at 50, 60 words a minute. I'm not one of those. Uh, I can I can hold my own at a modest speed. You know, you get up into the 30s, fine. After that, um, 
I have to listen a couple of times before I get it. Uh, so I do a lot of phone, uh, but I like CW. It's, it's. Um, well, let me just relate one experience. On a, I, I spent a lot of time about the stretch of 10 or 12 years uh, as a builder and operator and setup guy for the uh, JPL Radio Club, W6VIO. We'd go up on an 8,000-foot mountain for field day every year. And it was a really lot of fun working with these really brilliant guys who put you know, landers on Mars and so on. Um, and every year, uh, you know, we'd have to, you know, climb towers and set up and, and so on. So I got a chance to do a lot of hardware work that uh, enabled us to reduce the setup time. But uh, in addition to setting up, I like to operate. And I take some of the shifts that no one wanted, like the, you know, 4 to 9 a.m. shift on 20 meters. Well, I was sitting there on 20, and conditions weren't particularly good this one year and uh, I was on uh, I was on phone and finding that almost every other contact I either had to request a fill or give a fill because some piece of information didn't get through and I was running I don't know maybe 90 contacts an hour which seems kind of slow to me and I finally just got exhausted and I said you know what I'm going down to CW and I went and the signals were still dirt weak but I didn't need any fills. I didn't have to give any fills. Everything was solid copy. And my rate went up to about 130 or 140. Wow. And, and I was more relaxed. So even though I'm not you know, inherently a CW guy, it has so many advantages when you go there. It's, it's, a much, it's a different kind of operating. And I find it more precision and, and easier to deal with. And certainly in a DX contest, CW is great because you know, the, the accents that can sometimes make it difficult to copy an unusual phonetic or the uh, noise and, and the, the crowded conditions of the band uh, make it harder to pull out all the information in a human voice as opposed to detecting the presence or absence of a carrier. It's just, it's easier to decode. Well, you're you're making a, a great case for uh, for me to want to continue my studying because I've only been licensed since 2009 and when I was young, I didn't have access to the equipment or, you know, the mentors really to uh, to truly get involved in this. And then the, the code seemed way out of reach. And, of course, now that I didn't have to have it, I'm really interested in learning. You know, uh, it's surprising you say that. Because, I'm not surprised you say it because uh, I'm finding that a lot of people who got their licenses without having to know the code have taken it up anyway. One very notable is uh, Dr. Kate Hutton. K6HTN, who many of you may have seen as the, one of the talking heads from the uh, Caltech Seismology Lab during major earthquakes. Uh, she got her license about four or five years ago, realizing that uh, uh, there were times when they simply couldn't rely on commercial communications to get the words out that they needed to. And uh, she not only uh, quickly advanced through the uh, license classes, uh, but also started getting on code, is now our section traffic manager, and teaches CW classes for others who want to learn. So it, it's really a delight. And I also read an interesting uh, stat, I think it was a year or two ago, that the number of entries in the ARRL CW sweepstakes was at an all-time high. Now this is, this is many years after the code requirement was eliminated, so go figure. <laughs> 
Well, you know, one of my Elmers always tells me because, I, you know, as somebody who is uh, who's, you know, well into my career and working quite a bit and has a family, my time to devote to amateur radio is more limited now than it will be in the future. And when asked, you know, should I study for my extra or should I learn CW, you I will get a lot more radio capacity by picking up CW than I will by getting that extra bit of bandwidth for my extra. Absolutely. And I think eventually uh, uh, the extra will follow just because you'll hear some interesting things at the bottom of the band, assuming you have time to chase DX. <laughs> and a place to put an antenna. I have a house and a place now. To put an antenna. I have a house now, and uh, I've just confirmed that my neighbors won't complain if I put an infant in the backyard, uh, even though the HOA doesn't allow it. But what they don't see won't hurt me. So, folks, I am talking to Marty, November 6th, Victor, India. And uh, we're talking about de-expeditions and now kind of bringing us back to de-expeditions. So throughout your career, I'm assuming you, well, maybe it's not a good assumption. Did you ever have the luxury of being able to have a station in your home and work from the comfort of an office? Uh, well, yes, I did. Uh, starting with uh, after I got my, uh, my first license, uh, living with my parents, I, I put up a, a 40 meter inverted V that doubled on 15 meters and and uh, started working uh, the states and a little bit of DX. Uh, when I got my general, I uh, I wanted to put up a tower. The folks objected, but I said, "Look, look at all your friends whose kids are off doing stuff, getting in trouble. I'm right here. You'll know where I am." And I made the pitch, and they finally said, "Okay." My folks were really very supportive. So uh, some friends and I got together dug a base, put up a, a three-section uh, crank-up tower, and I put up a four-element quad, and right above that, a two-element uh, shortened 40. And uh, I played with that for quite a few years. Uh, when I moved out, uh, after getting some work and being able to buy my first house, um, got about a half an acre, and with some planning and the help of friends, uh, put up 100 feet of Tri-X T20, and a stack of monobanders from three elements on 40 up through all the way up through two meters. And uh, then we really played. Wow. But it's also clear from your early days and throughout your career, you were no stranger to operating portably, which would obviously come in handy in the future as you started getting into the expeditions. Oh, sure. Field day is, is uh, the quintessential portable operation. And, uh, Frankly, every operation we've done from outside uh, the comforts of home or somebody else's home um, teaches you something about preparing and dealing with problems and so on. And, and I'll tell you, that is an asset no matter what direction you end up pursuing in amateur radio. I, I give some of my de-expedition-related talks to uh, emergency communication groups. Uh, because like them, you know, you've invested in this, this trip, you know, giving up is not an option. You got to figure out a way around problems and, and, uh, get on with it. And, uh, the same thing when you're trying to do public service, if things are hitting the fan, find a way to make it work. Hams are unique in, in terms of most, uh, radio services in that if something doesn't work, we don't just turn it in and get another one. We figure out what's wrong and either fix it or find a way around it. So, uh, sure that, that early portable stuff and, you know, climbing towers and trees and, uh, stringing beverages through the bushes and whatever else you had to do to get a signal on the air, uh, you just did and it became a normal part of your operation. 
Well, and that's something actually we've we've kind of covered quite a bit on Faux Time in conversations with George KJ6VU and uh, Kale about things to have ready to be prepared for about anything that could go wrong while operating portably in the field. So, Marty, as you know, we we look at this ultimately. What drove you from your comfortable shack to decide to go and put the time, money, effort, the planning, and everything into becoming somebody who goes on de-expeditions? Well, it started pretty simply. Um, as I mentioned, the the first, you know, I was always curious what it was like on the other side of the pileup. Um, I'd done uh, quite a bit of domestic contesting with what station I had available, and and uh, in a couple of cases, working with some other folks in a, in small multi ops. Uh, but I was curious what it was like on the other side, and the invitation from uh, Randy KH6XX was a really easy start. It was a single band. The station was already there. Um, all I really had to do was, you know, bring some headphones and and a, a paddle and and uh, do a little a little initial research and then sit down and operate. Um, so and the the uh, the XC2SI operation was very much like a field day. It's just that we had amplifiers and uh, we had some more, you know, power distribution to deal with. Which uh, there's there's a ton of fun stories. So you're going to have to stop me at some point here when I if I get going <laughs> on any of them. Every everyone has some really cool stories, um, and uh, and I guess the first exotic one was French Guiana with uh, uh, with a number of the folks who ended up becoming the Voodoo's uh, and others. And we uh, uh, we set up a station where none had existed and took everything with us pretty much. And then we had to, you know, take it down and haul it back. This is, you know, antennas and amplifiers and so on. And my first experience at, at, at really taking it all with you using airlines and so on. Mexico was easy because we just drove down and uh, I built a tower trailer and, and we brought that and several other tower trailers. In fact, uh, this was November 83 and it was not that long after the uh, U.S. invasion of Grenada, which you may remember. And we were concerned that this lineup of tower trailers almost looked like they, it was the second wave. <laughs> For, fortunately, our, our hosts in the Tijuana Radio Club had, uh, had prepared uh, everything for us, so there was really no question crossing the border. We had our list of equipment and so on. But, uh, uh, you know, once you have to take everything on an airline, and uh, you know things get lost in the in the in the shuffle between the airports and so on. Uh, that's when those challenges start. All right. And speaking of challenges, I mean, a lot of amateurs are obviously uh, have engineering backgrounds or scientific backgrounds, and I most amateurs I run into in some capacity or another tend to be planners. And I, I'm assuming you don't have a successful de expedition without a lot of planning up front. Well, that's that's true, and uh, I am not an engineer, by the way. I've actually never had an electronics class, although I teach some technical courses to to uh, clubs and and uh, MCOM groups and so on. That's just what I've gathered over the years. Uh, I'm a retired CPA, and uh, of course, we had to plan, you know, financial audits and and other kinds of things. So, yeah, planning and working with spreadsheets was kind of a natural uh, a natural thing. Um, Preparing for the trip uh, starts first. Most of the places we've gone, there have been local hams there, and you never want to come in and just kind of run roughshod over the local folks not knowing what their plans are. Uh, so we would contact them either at some of the big conventions or by phone or by radio or, or uh, 
whatever you could do. Early days, we didn't have email. And uh, you do a little recon and say, gee, you know, is there a station we can we could come and operate and maybe supplement the station so that it works for a multi-op? Almost all our operations were what you call multi-multi, which is multi-transmitter, multi-operator. That means uh, you have as many bands going at once as conditions will permit. Uh, you're not limited to being on one band at a time. And in some cases, that makes us a little less competitive with the really big boys. But on the other hand, it maximizes the number of contacts. And our philosophy has generally been, look, we're not there to sit and not make contacts on a band. We're there to work as much as we can and uh, to put get give the contacts out to as many people as possible because often these are multipliers for the folks who are working us in the, in the contest and uh, maybe a new country for some of those folks who are just in it to chase countries. So um, we... Let me, uh, let me ask you a quick question. Sorry shoot. to interrupt. That actually kind of brings up a question. Do you mostly align your de-expedition activities around contests? Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, the uh, the likelihood of a lot of people being on is is the greatest. Uh, uh, you know, there will be people get on for a contest weekend that don't have their radios on, you know, for 90% of the rest of the year. So the the, the, the activity is intense, uh, and it kind of maximizes the time we're going to spend there on the air instead of, you know, sitting there calling CQ on an empty band, hoping somebody's going to show up and decide to work us. And remember, a lot of this was in the days before there were spotting networks, and nobody spotted you. They either tuned across you and found you, or they didn't. So the con- the contests were really the crux of the uh, of the planning effort. So that's something that's a lot different than. Like the uh, the Navasaw Island or Midway Island, where these folks are planning to be out there for a week or two to keep these you know rare locations on the air, so people can yes, like, get very DXCC different, or... very very different. Although you know we will try uh, if if conditions permit, we will be on the air before the contest starts. To sometimes with our own individually issued calls, and sometimes with the group call, to uh, kind of test the systems and make sure everything's working. We have to test for inter interstation interference and so on. Make sure the antennas are working okay, and get a feel for how things are going to stack up. And if there's time afterward, uh, as there was, for example, in uh, in Rarotonga in the in the South Cook Islands. The flight there from L.A. Uh, went once a week, and it came back once a week, and it went on a Saturday, uh, which meant uh, we got there, you know, five days before the contest, and it left on a on a Sunday, which means we had to wait, made, wait another week to uh, to uh, uh, you know get back home. So unless we wanted to route all the way through New Zealand, so we left uh, several of the bands up for a while, and uh, every Saturday, every morning rather, on twenty meters around. Uh, Oh, an hour or two before sunrise, we'd have an opening to Europe. So uh, we had guys getting on uh, CW, of course, because a lot of our guys are heavy CW ops. We had a couple of ops on phone getting on 10 meters, which was pretty good. And I decided to get on RTTY uh, during those post-contest periods because I figured, well, there are probably not too many people have uh, South Cook Islands on teletype. And I had my Elecraft K3 with me, and uh, uh, that has the capability to turn CW that I said with a paddle into Bordeaux, and you can read the incoming on the BVFO readout. 
So that enabled me to basically operate without any dedicated RIDI equipment and just, you know, calling, spreading them out, tuning around, finding them. And in the course of a few mornings, I worked seven or 800 stations on uh, teletype. So uh, to that extent, yeah, we put something on outside the contest period, but the contest was the reason we were there. Okay. So if going kind of going back, we were talking about preparing you coordinating with somebody locally to make sure you're not stepping on anyone's toes and that you have some support when you get to your destination. What else are you planning for before you go? Well, of course, uh, you have to make sure you have the appropriate licenses uh, for the individual operators and for uh, the group as a whole. We usually try, if we can, to get a shorter call for the group. Uh, most of the time we've succeeded, uh, you know, a, a four or five character call that uh, will be easy to get and easy to hear on the air. Um, You have to be concerned about customs clearance for the equipment, um, uh, power sources. Uh, Most parts of the world don't use the same power plugs or or sources we do. Um, uh, Tools and spare parts, because some of the places we go, there aren't any spare parts, and you have to be ready to do something uh, to, to take care of a problem. Uh, you have to be prepared in some cases to climb. I, I am a climber, and, and I usually throw in uh, my uh, lightweight climbing harness and a, and a gorilla hook so that I can I can get up a, a tower or a structure of some sort if I have to string something or move something or fix something. Uh, we look at propagation forecasts and also supplement that with local knowledge. Gee, you know, uh, maybe at 15 meters at midnight over here, there's going to be an opening to Europe that you might not expect. So we use... Uh, forecasts like uh, Shell Shallon's tools or some others, and uh, we've had people run some really nice forecasts for us, like Dean Straw, who wrote uh, a lot of the ARL antenna book material for many years. Um, And then um, more recently, um, we've had to deal with very restricted weight limits on the airlines. Uh, used to be, you know, several 70-pound suitcases a piece, and that was no problem. I'd put the amp in uh, one case, stuff clothes in the body cavity like a, like a Thanksgiving turkey, take the transformer out, stick it in my wife's suitcase, uh, and uh, then we'd, uh, you know, we'd all pile stuff in, and, and uh, we got away with, with some stuff that you could never even imagine today. Uh, going down to the Galapagos, um, we were operating from... Uh, uh, Guido's place, HCHGR, on San Cristobal. And his house had the 220, but there was no, uh, it was a, a, every room was tail ended on the next one. So everything was wired in series. And we were concerned about the voltage drop with the amp. So we said, well, we'll rewire his house for him. We'll do it all in parallel <laughs> from the entrance. So, of course, we already had our equipment in there. So we had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet of Romex coiled up and duct taped to the outside of our suitcase. Imagine how that would fly with TSA these days. <laughs> and uh, in French Guiana, one of our antenna pieces, one of our masts, was too long to go into their their luggage area. So we actually, they let us bring it on and lay it in the aisle where everybody was standing, uh, or sitting rather. And and so, again, you just couldn't get, get through these things uh, today. Uh, and as weight limits uh, go down, now it's, you know, a 50-pound case and a you know, and a carry-on, and then everything else is extra. And the more you add, the costs go up geometrically. So we have a lot of planning to do just figuring out uh, how to get the materials from here to there with acknowledge there's going to be some cost, but minimize the cost on the group. Um, I have my uh, 
antenna cases that uh, we take everything broken down into four foot lengths. So we use these SKB golf club cases, uh, which are nice because as sporting equipment, uh, they don't usually suffer the dimensional penalty that you'd have with a long, thin kind of case. And uh, I have one uh, packed for uh, 69.9 pounds and another for 49.9 pounds. And I know exactly what goes in each one because I use spreadsheets to allocate all the weights. So uh, we try and, you know, keep it, keep the weights within limit and still make sure we bring as much as we can uh, expect to need. Wow. Folks, we're talking to Marty Wall, N6VI, and uh, we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. It's Christine at Main Trading Company in Paris, Texas. We just want to take a moment to say thanks to all of you guys for your support throughout the years. Six years in business now. After four different locations, the addition of our very own post office, ham radio, and local honey just seem to go together. Main Trading Company, celebrating six years in the ham radio business. Thanks for all your support. As we head back to Jeremy and Marty, this portion of the Photon Podcast will be brought to you by Kenwood USA's THF6 Alpha 2 meter, 220 and 440 5 watt tri band handy talkie with its broad receiver. It's got 400 channels of just memory, all right, along with multiple modes of operating. The THF6 is a great choice if you're looking for a solid built and easy to use, that's the key, radio handy talkie. Three of the most popular repeater bands and a full HF receiver makes the THF6 rise above the competition. You can find yours today at mtcradio.com, mtcradio.com. So we've kind of talked about planning, and one of the things that, that that's kind of coming to my mind is, on average, how many people are traveling with you in your de-expedition groups? Um, we've had uh, as as few as two or three uh, plus a couple of local folks, and as many as nine or ten. So that's that's about the size of the group. We base this on how many local operators will be uh, participating, you know, in earnest with us, as opposed to just guesting in the chair for a while. Some some just want to come by and spend a few minutes on the air to play with the station we set up. Others want to be there full bore. Uh, but we also look at the number of bands we're operating. Usually, all of them, 160 through 10, and the uh, the amount of coverage we expect to need based on the propagation conditions. Okay, and for the most part, the locations you're going to, we, we kind of talked about power earlier. Are you doing the type of work like some other de-expeditions, like when you get there, you have to climb a cliff in order to get to your operating position and you have to bring in hundreds of gallons of fuel and generators? Or for the most part, are you operating from places that have the majority of the power and other facilities that you guys would need? In virtually every case, we're operating from a place that has the power. We don't climb cliffs. I climb towers, but not cliffs. I, I enjoy the view from a tower, but uh, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, re, uh, reconstruct the uh, Robert De Niro, uh, you know, climbing up the waterfall. <laughs> so so uh, not quite that adventurous. Uh, the power is there. The one, uh, the one thing that uh, we've run into on occasion is the uh, consistency of the power. Uh, in the Galapagos, for example, uh, the normal routine was, uh, because everything was run off uh, fuel-driven generators there for power, um, the generators were on, you know, the power was on every day, and they shut it off 
late in the evening until the next morning. Well, this certainly wouldn't do for a 48-hour contest. So we got together and approached the local power company and said, what would it take to uh, keep the power on all weekend? And they said, well, it's extra fuel. And he said, how much? And he gave us a number. And, uh, and so we kind of ponied up and we paid for the extra fuel to keep the, uh, to keep the power on. Now, in instances like that, when you're working in other countries, have you by and large met a lot of positive reception or have you ever run into instances where there's been a lot of challenges to get going, to get there, to get set up and to operate? Well, yes and yes. As far as a positive reception, uh, virtually always. Occasionally we have to uh, talk or argue our way through a uh, uh, through a uh, customs uh, customs fellow uh, in the Gambia. We had a guy who uh, thought our coax was so valuable that we should be paying several hundred dollars of duty for it. And uh, he said, well, your alternative is to leave it here. And I said, well, we can't leave it here because even though we're bringing it back out, we need it for the operation. And uh, fortunately, uh, one of our members, uh, um, N6ZZ in the uh, now silent key, another uh, of the many CQ Hall of Fame members we've operated with, um, had thought to uh, send around uh, a scan of the permission letter he had gotten for our license uh, in which the Minister of Post and Telegraph said, and you should have no problem with customs. So I had printed that and brought it with me, and I whipped it out. The guy goes back in the back room, comes back muttering and grumbling, uh, realizing he wasn't going to get a payday today, and and uh, and uh, let us through with it. But uh, So, I mean, that, that sort of challenge getting there is one thing, uh, but the reception... Uh, in terms of the uh, the official folks, uh, you know the, the the ministries have been great. Uh, the uh, the local hams uh, it, it, and and uh, whoever was hosting us, uh, some of the local uh, visitors, even the non hams, uh, just absolutely delightful. And, uh, and and that's been that's been really wonderful. Now the challenges have come more from the uh, I guess from the logistical side. Once you're there. Um, we've had issues with, uh, you know, structures not being the way they thought they'd be, uh, obstacles to routing coax from one place to another, but, uh, probably no place, um, uh, takes the, uh, takes the cake for obstacles like, uh, uh, Charlie five Zulu back in uh, 2003. Uh, this was, uh, this is the Gambia in West Africa. Uh, getting the license was no problem, but, uh, there were no indigenous hams in the country, uh, which means nobody to borrow anything from, nobody to help, uh, you know, clue us in or set, set things up. Fortunately, uh, 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 Henrik uh, SM0JHF, whom you, whose pictures you may have seen gracing the cover of CQ and other uh, publications, he's a great photographer, uh, was there caretaking an old AM broadcast station, uh, an old former pirate station. And uh, so we were able to... Uh, you know, access and utilize that to, with the permission of the owners and Henrik's uh, being there. Uh, but we had power surges that took out most of our power supplies. Uh, we had a storm that washed our antennas into the ocean uh, six hours before the contest. 
Um, we had all sorts of issues. Uh, uh, they, they had a construction company that moved the beach, so our 500 feet of coax that was enough for all the bands became enough for one band, and we had to scrounge the rest. So operationally, there, there were some really big challenges to overcome in some of these, but certainly uh, the challenges were not involving people, just involving technical issues. You know, since you, you're kind of talking about challenges, um, I love most interesting questions. So in, in your history of, of all your de-expeditions, what is the most interesting problem that you have run into with the most creative solution? <sighs> Boy. Um, there, there are, I, I don't know if there's any one that really stands out. There are a lot of, a lot of uh, seemingly minor ones, but they were frustrating at the time. Um, when we were in Brazil, uh, we had two uh, very well-known uh, uh, Hall of Famers, uh, uh, Jim Niger, N6TJ, and Marty Lane, OH2BH. Um, the location we were operating from at uh, uh, PY5EGs had two towers, uh, had multiple towers, but one on each end of the property had a 20-meter beam. And, of course, you know, 20 is a pretty big band. This was a phone contest. And so uh, Marty and Jim decided they were going to split 20 meters and one take low, one take high. They both had Kenwood TS940s. But when one transmitted, even though they were the, the antennas were separated by the size of the property, uh, the other one got wiped out on receive. So our solution there was to take uh, my TS930 and uh, PY5TT also had a TS930, earlier version of the same rig, but Mine had a lots of, uh, I'd, I'd put four uh, Fox Tango filters in the thing, uh, you know, for IFs, for phone and CW. So it was pretty robust. So we swapped out our TS930s for their 940s and took them for our single band efforts. And, you know, I was just on 80 by myself. And they, you know, plug for plug, they substituted one radio for another. And now when one transmitted, the other could hear. So something as simple as going to an earlier model of the almost the same radio took care of that problem. Um, in, uh, in Qatar, Alpha 7-3 Alpha in the Persian Gulf, we had a, uh, a whole set of antennas uh, that came from uh, Tom Schiller that arrived and cleared customs just a few days before the contest. So we were all out there, and this was kind of a field day style thing up the north peninsula of the island, uh, building like crazy and trying to tune the antennas was you know you'd put the analyzer on you get nonsensical results and everybody's going nuts and i remember somebody mentioning that there had been a high power am broadcast station i mean really high power uh that you know within you know 10 or 15 miles of the place although we couldn't see it and i speculated that maybe that was caught that was getting into the analyzers so i said well you know we have bandpass filters that we're going to use on the, on the radios as, as we uh, all operate, why don't we take the bandpass filter for each band and put it on the anal front end of the analyzer? And sure enough, the AM was out of there and everything read normally and we could tune the antennas up. So these are little things, but, you know, you, 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 figure, you figure out a problem, a problem and, and solve it. Um, in the case of the power surges in the Gambia, uh, some of our guys got even more creative. One of the many problems we had uh, was that uh, power transformer on the 40-meter, or the uh, power uh, capacitors, rather, in the power supply of our 40-meter amp blew up. 
Uh, John Barcroft, K6AM, was one of our group, and he's a broadcast engineer. And uh, recall that this place we were operating used to be an old pirate broadcast station. So he hunted around and found this big old capacitor, that you know, oil-filled capacitor that took a couple of people to lug around. So he hot-wired it into the power supply in lieu of the stack that had blown up, and it worked. So, of course, it wouldn't fit in the case, so we had to run the thing, uh, the amplifier, with the case off and high-voltage power going, lines going down to the floor where this capacitor was sitting, and we had to make sure nobody operated barefoot. <laughs> Double entendre there. Yes. So this is actually a great segue into, you mentioned that you would have 9, 10 people on the larger scale. In your bigger operations, how many simultaneous transmitters were you running? And you had mentioned earlier that you were covering all bands, and I'm curious about you know how many modes you were covering. Well, uh, the contests are single mode, so uh, we were either always on CW or always on sideband. Most of the more recent ones were on sideband, and uh, we would have up to six uh, transmitters going at one time. Actually, in the case of yeah, I'd say that's right. Uh, I guess in the case of Brazil, we had seven because we had two 20-meter uh, transmitters. But often at the right time, certain times of the day and night, all, seven, all six bands were going, and we'd have somebody on all six bands. Well, I know from my experience with the, uh, the Alexandria Radio Club in Alexandria, Virginia, W4HFH, um, the field days that I did with them, we would either operate as 5-alpha or 7-alpha. And I know the challenges that you can run into having that many transmitters and that many antennas all in such close proximity. Um, I'm kind of curious what you guys, well, actually, I guess the first question I should ask is what kind of antennas are you using when you travel like this? Um, usually we were bringing either um, force 12 uh, vertical dipole arrays for those locations close to the water that's facing in the right direction or uh, force 12 Yaggies plus uh dipoles for the lower bands and then what how did you guys keep from interfering with one another and uh, this is a classic question that i deal with uh, in my field day talks too uh, the first step is use the most robust radios you can i mentioned the k3 uh, my old ts 930 was one of those very robust radios when the k3s came out we all gravitated to them pretty quickly because of the high performance the lightweight and uh and the fact that they they really have very robust receivers. Um, so, you know, if we were all operating you know, little, uh, you know, portable dual rigs, we probably would have had a huge problem that we couldn't overcome. Uh, so a, a good robust rig is the first requirement. Uh, after that, you look at antenna layout, and to the extent you can, if you can keep one signal, uh, one antenna out of the pattern of the other one, you know, put them off to the sides, for example, so that for the highest uh, QSO rate directions, uh, they're in each other's nulls rather than one looking right into the other. Um, we use uh, good bandpass filters, usually the uh, uh, W3IQI design bandpass filters, uh, which go at the output of the transceivers. They're not designed for kilowatts, but they're designed for the uh, transceiver level, a couple hundred watts. Uh, and then the final measure is usually to uh, I made I've made a set several sets now over the years of stub filters, which is basically uh, a parallel stub, either at the output of the amp or some distance from it, that uh, will uh, allow it will be invisible uh, uh, to the uh, to the fundamental frequency, but it will uh, suck out one or more 
of the harmonic frequencies. So these sets of stub filters uh, at the output of the amplifiers will finish off uh, whatever either got past the bandpass filters, which usually isn't much, they're really good, but also what's generated by the amplifiers themselves. Okay, so that, that all makes sense. You mentioned um, the Elecraft K3. Now, in general, especially in your more recent um, de-expeditions, is that the only radio you guys take, or what other radios are you using? Uh, sometimes we will use um, the radios of one of our hosts, uh, uh, and it depends on which members of our team are going on a particular trip. Not everybody has a K3. And uh, by the way, I should say here, because I know you're going to ask sometime, no, we don't have KX3s, and no, we haven't tried them. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I imagine there are some, uh, there are some uh, suitcase expeditions that have, and I'll be anxious to hear how they perform. Uh, I know they're great for the mountain toppers and so on. But uh, uh, we have used, uh, I've used... Uh, uh, other manufacturer radios that just happened to be there. We didn't have enough to go around. Uh, in Jamaica, for example, I was uh, assigned 160 meters, and uh, uh, the uh, the more robust radios went to some of the other uh, bands. And I had a small uh, uh, Japanese manufacturer radio that was not really designed for this kind of service, but it was it was quite adequate for uh, in you know for general purposes, and. Uh, but I had a problem with RF feedback on the thing, so um, I ended up going to the uh, kitchen, getting a roll of aluminum foil, wrapping it around the uh, mic cord connection, and and running it all the way up to the headphones. Uh, I looked a sight, but it cured the problem, uh, and I managed. I think I was probably eight or nine hundred, almost a thousand contacts on 160. Uh, of course, from Jamaica, that's easier to do, but uh, uh, for the most part. Uh, we use we use the Delacrafts that we bring along. Uh, some places, such as in Qatar, uh, we could not get permission to bring the radios in, so we used uh, the radio. I think they had FT two thousands. So uh, the club there had already arranged for radios, and so we used those. So you, Kale, I just want you to know that you're not the only person who doesn't have a KX three. <laughs> That's a that's a long-standing thing. Almost everybody that comes through has a KX3 and loves it, myself included. Um, I do have to ask, are you uh, going to be upgrading to the new K3S? Um, what I may do is get the board and uh, you know go in and and, re- and replace the uh, uh, replace the oscillator board, uh, which should give me pretty much uh, that functionality. Uh, I'm not one to go out and buy a new radio every year, just like I don't go out and buy a new car every year. I usually put anywhere from 180 to 250,000 miles on my cars. And uh, my wife asserts that I have never sold a radio once I bought it. That's really not true, but uh, I'd, have to, uh, I'd have to work a little bit to prove it. Um, so I, I still have, next to my K3, I still, I still have my TS-930. And I, when I sent the K3 in for some... Uh, uh, some front panel um, work that I really didn't feel comfortable doing on my own. And it happened to be, I think, CW sweepstakes or something. So I fired up the old 930 and remembered how great it worked and, and had a blast with that. So, um, uh, you know, you, you use what's available. You know, if, if it's a matter of being on five bands and not using a, 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 non-contest normal, a non-contest radio or being on six bands and having that radio in service, you put it in service and you do what you can, recognizing that uh, it may not 
be as tolerant of those other signals out there as some other radios might be. So, you you know, we've kind of covered the gamut as far as uh, the things you do to prepare, some of the challenges you run into, and then also your your style of operating. What is the absolute worst de-expedition that you've been on? Um, I'm not sure there ever, there was a worst. I mean, again, you you get some satisfaction from overcoming the challenges, and and in fact, in, in that Gambia case, not only did we overcome all these physical challenges and and so on, but we actually came out number one in the world. I mean, that that is a very satisfying thing. Uh, uh, I guess the the one that I uh, there was one to uh, the Virgin Islands uh, where in the afternoon as the contest was getting started, uh, my wife uh, got in a car serious car accident in the rainstorm, and we had to bail out. So that certainly was the worst. Uh, but you know, no fault of the hosts or no fault of the location, other than the weather that made meant she couldn't see the truck coming. So what uh, what do you have in store in the near future? What's what's your next expedition? Are you planning anything right now? Right now, no. Um, I, I've actually uh, the last one was a couple of years ago, and uh, various circumstances have combined uh, to uh, uh, keep me at home for the last couple of years. Uh, last year, that actually worked out okay because with the ARRL Centennial going on, I really wanted to hand out as many contacts as possible. I think I gave out a couple of million points. Uh, in the uh, centennial, uh, because as vice director, we had, we were assigned a lot of a high point value. So I operated from home and gave a lot of those contacts out. Um, these things usually aren't planned all that far in advance. Our kind of our team leaders, uh, Dick Norton, N6AA, another CQ contest hall of famer, and uh, happens to be the director uh, uh, for ARRL Southwestern Division here. So he and I work closely together on that, and he makes contacts at. Uh, Dayton and Visalia and other hams. He knows he's he's I think the only living person who's operated from all forty of the CQ zones, and uh, in in the in the CQ contests. So he knows people all over the world, and we'll try to find something. Nothing's really popping up this time, uh, so we'll we'll keep looking. Now, as the sunspots decline, some of the opportunities that were attractive you know, that are very far removed from other parts, you know, the, the high population density areas uh, were attractive when, you know, 10 and 15 were open most of the time. Uh, as the sunspots decline, we may have to rethink that because, you know, you don't want several of your operators sitting around the band with almost nobody to work. Well, that makes complete sense. Um, speaking of working, Talk a little bit, you know, one of the things is that the average ham is not going to get to experience in their life what it's like to be, like you said, at the other end of the pileup. Um, you know, I know what it's like when I'm, if I'm working a contest portably and I can hear all the stations trying to work whatever station it is to get the points. Um, but what is it like when you're under the pressure to try to respond to thousands of people calling you? Well, it's a real rush, actually. Um, and part of Part of the uh, skill that anybody can build is pulling stuff out of a pileup. Uh, you know, you could sit there listening 
tool pile up on an expedition or a, a, a very desirable contest station, whatever it may be, and sit there and see how many of those calls you can pull out when you hear many of them calling. Uh, now, you won't hear the same things that, that the expedition does because the propagation is different there than here, but uh, it'll be good practice. There are domestic contests where uh, you can be you can be rare. Uh, I've I've gone. Uh, I've done a lot of VHF, UHF, and microwave contesting. And uh, if you get a good six-meter opening in the June contest, and I'm up at 8,000 feet with a multi-op, you know, uh, and the band opens, uh, all of a sudden it's, you know, four or five contacts a minute. Uh, so you can get a rush there. Uh, field day uh, is a good chance to practice just because there are so many domestic stations on the air. Um uh, and and there are other opportunities. Uh, I mentioned a couple of times uh, ARRL sweepstakes. These are uh, two weekends in November, the first weekend in November being the CW one and the third weekend being the phone one. This is really a, a contester's contest in that uh, the exchange isn't just a predictable signal report and uh, or, or zone or state or whatever. Uh, it's a it's a multi-part exchange that simulates a radiogram message header. So you've got number, precedence, check, and so on. And so it really takes some copying ability. And uh, there are some of the best operators in, in the country come out for sweepstakes. It's really amazing how great they are. And so if you were to show up, for example, on a Sunday afternoon when everything's really slow and people are dying for contacts and you're fresh meat, you can experience that pileup by getting on and running some stations. Uh, there are sprints that go on, sprint contests that last only four hours, and everybody's trying to work everybody else. Now, you don't do a pileup there because you have, to, you have to move under the rules. You have to move frequency. Once you have put out a call and somebody's answered you, you have to move and go find somebody else to answer. But there are opportunities um, on the air to, uh, uh, to experience a little bit of that. Uh, but ultimately, uh, if you're sitting there with a big pileup, uh, part of the uh, part of the success comes from being able to manage the pileup, and that is to try and instill some discipline by not only how you instruct the group, but also by how you respond to the group. Uh, if you're listening for sevens and you get a call from a persistent four, you ignore them until you come around to the fours. Uh, you'll hear some the experienced de-expeditioners doing this. They have to sort out pileups that are often a lot bigger than what we deal with in the contests. And so, you know, instilling some kind of discipline is great, and that depends on what you're trying to, to work at as to how successful it is. Uh, uh, the, uh, the JAs are well known for being some of the most polite and orderly operators on the air. And when we were in the Gambia, although I was on 160, I did spell uh, uh, Dick and 6AA on 20 meters for a couple of hours and caught a JA opening. So uh, I uh, pulled out my college Japanese and ran the pile up in Japanese, and uh, I just started with zeros, worked my way down. Uh, the number I took based was based on the number of callers. And so nobody had to wait too long. And we went around like this for a couple of hours until uh, basically we'd work, literally worked them all. And there was nobody left calling. Um, so that pileup management is a good skill. And, and by the way, this is another of those things that can translate to um, uh, other areas of amateur radio, uh, disaster communications and formal nets and so on, uh, instilling that discipline and then following it in a friendly way, but making sure that you don't lose control of the pile uh, is very important. 
You know, you actually just sparked another question in my head. It's something that, you know, we don't talk about very much, but when you're sitting down to operate one of these contests and you've, you've gone through all this um, expense and time and effort to be in these places. And like you said, you're there to operate. What is the strategy for being able to sit down at a radio for six plus hours, you know, either working CW or doing phone? I mean, are you relying on keyers to do the work for you or relying on voice recorders? How, how do you do that? Um, I use them some. Uh, certainly on CW, uh, you'll use some, uh, uh, often you'll use the functions. But a lot of these contests we were doing before there was computer uh, computer logging. So it was a, uh, a you know, a, a multifunction uh, memory keyer and your paddle and pencil and paper. And that's how we did it. Um, uh, on voice, uh, the K3 has this nice uh, digital voice recorder. I will use that. Um Particularly if I'm on a fringe band, by that I mean a band that for an extended period of time may have some contacts in it but is not wide open, which means uh, repetitive CQs. You know, I will, I will set the uh, repeat function to maybe every three seconds, put out calls and, and, uh, and sit there listening for contacts and then periodically tune the band to see if there's somebody else that I may have missed. Um, but when the band's busy uh, on phone, uh, I almost never use the voice keyer because it it's as fast to say, you know, thanks, Charlie Five Zulu, as it is to go and find a button to push. Um, and so, you know, crisp operating uh, can be just as easy as pushing buttons. Uh, you try not to uh, yell into the microphone. I mean, contrary to some popular opinion, yelling does not make you louder on the other end. <laughs> It may make you more distorted, but it doesn't make you louder. So you try and save your voice. You try and relax your muscles. Uh, you try. Uh, you don't eat big, heavy meals. And, and you say, you know, sitting there for six hours, you know, um, oftentimes uh, I was on 80 both in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Qatar and in uh, Honduras. And I went from, you know, when the contest started and it was dark or getting dark, uh, through the next morning, so you're there for you know ten hours or so in a stretch, and uh, you just the excitement of of keeping things going and and, and seeing the rate meter pile up is enough, uh, and and I then I it, it's enough to keep you going. Uh, physically, your voice can get a little more worn out on phone, so of course you you try and relax uh, again and not not overdo the. Uh, the yelling, you try and use efficient phonetics. Uh, you say phi instead of five. You say nigh instead of nine and uh, keep your tongue from getting tired. Well, that's interesting because that's, that's one of the things I know from field day before when I'm I, I've had some pretty good field days where it's been pretty high contact rates on voice. And, you know, your throat starts to go out. You uh, your mouth gets dry. You know, actually, even even doing this interview the entire time, like I have to keep drinking water or or things just continually dry out. I couldn't imagine sitting there with that amount of pressure because even ta- stopping to take a restroom break, you know, your, your, your rates are going down. Sure. But, uh, Oh, you, you mentioned water. Yeah. You do need to stay hydrated, but, uh, don't overdo it. <laughs> Otherwise you'll be taking a lot of those other breaks, uh, <laughs> but stay hydrated again, uh, go easy on the food and, uh, try to maintain as comfortable a temperature as you can. Some places that's a real challenge. Some of our places have been in, in the tropics with no air conditioning. Um, but, uh, it's, it, it, again, if you 
pace yourself. And if you have somebody else ready to go to take over, um, and and usually there's there's you know we try and set it up so somebody can take over if necessary if somebody needs an extended break, knowing that 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 person is there takes the pressure off a little bit and often allows you to keep going. You say, well, I don't I don't I'm not ready for them yet. I'm going to keep going and do a little more. Okay. Now we we've, we've covered the entire gamut of of the expedition and operating for this style. At the end of the day, faux time is really about our newer, younger operators or folks who've just gotten their license or folks who are just trying to understand the, the depth and breadth of amateur radio as a hobby. But if I'm a guy who has listened to this podcast and I am just raring to go to hop on an airplane with my KX3 in tow, what do I need to do um, as somebody who's never done a de-expedition? How, how do I get started? Well, um, first as I said earlier, it helps to take part domestically so that you get used to the, the process of contesting. Uh, join a local. There are multi-ops around who are looking for operators, even willing to coach newer operators and get them involved. Go find some of those. Ask if you can sit and watch. Sooner or later, you'll be invited to come and help operate. Um, uh, obviously, I know more than half the hams in the U.S. now, or close to half, are technician licensees. And with 10 meters uh, going south for the winter here, or for the for the sunspot cycle, uh, you really need at least your general class to be able to uh, uh, to be able to operate uh, if you're going overseas. Uh, and in some cases, in fact, you need your extra in order to operate the HF stuff. Uh, the CEPT countries, which are Europe and so on, uh, they consider the general class exam to be on a par with their newbie exams and therefore you don't get their general privileges unless you have an extra class. So look into what the requirements are in this place. But start domestically. Uh, take part in the sweepstakes, as I mentioned, get on Sunday, be fresh meat. Uh, the more contesting you do, the more little skills and tricks you'll build and, and pick up. Um, Use conventions and contacts on the air to find an available station that you can operate from. Um, uh, if you know of a, if you happen to be a CW operator and you know there's a, a station that only does phone or vice versa, uh, you know you might contact them and say, "Gee, I'd like to come and operate. Uh, I know that you're a, a CW guy. Is there any chance I might be able to operate your station phone?" And you might be surprised. Um, you may find if you're starting out, a single band operation is easier. Usually it means you don't have to be up uh, the bulk of 48 hours. And uh, you only have one band to worry about in terms of equipment and filtering and antennas. Um, so those those could all make it a little easier. Find a group that's already going somewhere. Ask if you can come along and help. You know, you can be a, a mule, the extra luggage, you know. And... Uh, and and uh, you may find you can spell somebody for a while. So there are, there's a variety of ways to do that. Okay, and are there any good resources online that I should check out if I, I want to kind of stay closer to the expeditions that are organizing or, you know, people talking about possibly forming one? Well, um, there uh, there's a... Uh, uh, obviously, there, there's some uh, talk on uh, some of the contest reflectors, uh, but there's one in particular. If you want to stand by a second, let me see if I can bring it up. Um, it's uh, called uh, Announced Operations. Um, it's maintained by uh, a station on the East Coast that, that has uh, uh, 
you know, people submit their plans, and then they'll organize the uh, uh, they'll organize the uh, data, usually uh, uh, by the date that they become active and the date they stop being active. This is true for regular de-expeditions, but usually they have a special segment uh, just for uh, just for contests. So uh, you find some of those, uh, and you can. Uh, you know, look and see who's going where. Now, not everybody will announce. I can't find it right now, but not everybody can uh, will announce their operations. We usually don't. We like to just kind of surprise people and show up. Uh, but um, a lot of people will announce they're going and who the operators are and who's the QSL route and so on. So by getting all that ahead of time, watch the uh, you know the ARL uh, DX bulletins and and uh, many of the other. Uh, online and uh, published uh, DX bulletins because usually if there's an operation that spans a contest period, they'll that'll show up in there. And maybe there's somebody you know who's going to be on the team. Uh, uh, one of my uh, good friends here and uh, section manager N6HD um, had never been out of the country and uh, had uh, a friend in Honduras and went down there to operate. Loved it and did very well in the uh, ARLDX contest, ended up hooking up with another friend from our local DX club, um, Arnie uh, N6HC, and since then he's been on several of these charter the boat expeditions, you know, the big ones, where they're out on the, in the middle of nowhere for a couple of weeks. So he got into it in a big way and, and has really been able to contribute and has enjoyed it thoroughly. Well, that sounds really good. Um, is there anything else you would like to leave our listeners with before we uh, say 73s? Well, um, you know, in your, uh, in your episode 33, you were interviewing, uh, uh, or Kay was inter interviewing uh, Bruce W1GQ, and he was talking about DXing and said you can have fun with modest equipment and, and uh, low wires and so on. I, I've certainly had fun even... You know, when I, when I lived in Hawaii, I had six 90-foot towers here. I've got low dipoles in the trees, but I still have fun. But one of the things he pointed out was that one of the advantages of DXing is you become aware of the world. And uh, I think that goes even more if you get a chance to visit uh, other parts of the world and talk to the operators there, experience the propagation, experience the local culture. Uh, you know, hams and uh, when you go in many of these other countries, hams tend to be, uh, A, a lot of them speak English, which is great for us. B, uh, they tend to be well-educated, and uh, they can tell you a lot about a country and how it works and what goes on there and, and some of the history and the culture and, and the politics and everything else that may be interesting to you that uh, you won't get uh, as a tourist you know, on a, on a planned tour of some kind. So wherever you go... Uh, take advantage of that opportunity to talk to the locals, find out uh, some of the things they find interesting, and learn about the people and the place. Uh, the more you learn about other parts of the world, the more you appreciate uh, what it takes for everybody to kind of get along. I mean, I've I've seen, you know, I've I've seen and heard, you know, tirades against some country or other who's enforcing a you know, a 600-mile fishing limit. You go down there and you talk to the people and you realize fishing is the only thing they have. That's that's the core of their economy. And, you know, when when a big, well-funded, you know, American or Canadian or other, uh, you know, fishing fleet comes in and, and fishes the place out, 
they they're left with nothing. And they look most of these places. They look at the U.S. and say, "Gee, they have so much. Why are they coming and taking what we have?" So all these things, you know, you get a very different perspective when you go down there. And so uh, if you do get a chance to go. You know, learn as much as you can about the place. Read ahead of time. My wife's really good at that. She'll read whatever books, she, historical books, whatever she can read on the subject and becomes one of my de facto tour guides. And then we really enjoy the place and enjoy the people a lot more that way. So that's, uh, that's my best advice. I think it's really awesome. Does your wife go with you on all of these? No. Uh, there are some that she has not gone on. Uh, particularly if if the circumstances are such that while we're contesting, uh, she couldn't go and do stuff on her own. We've had some where several spouses go together and they have a great time. We've done a lot of that in, in South America and some other places. Uh, she is licensed, but she's a tech, so she and she uh, she does some uh, six meter operating and she doesn't mind to pile up there. But uh, and she's done some uh, VHF and microwave with me, but she's not an HFer, so. Uh, She's there. She'll help build antennas and carry them out to the beach or whatever else needs doing. But once the contest starts, uh, any spouses that come along are on their own, so they have to go find something fun to do. <laughs> well, Marty, I want to thank you so very much for taking time out of your uh, schedule to spend with us. Well, Jeremy, and, uh, this has been a blast. I, I really appreciate it, and I, I hope we've gotten uh, some of the uh, listeners uh, excited about this possibility and uh, you know, focus on you – know, Keep getting experience. The one thing I try and tell people is, you know, a radio and a license does not make you a radio operator, just like it doesn't make you a good emergency communicator. It's getting on the air, experiencing different things, practicing, trying, fixing, solving problems, uh, building your radio's chops. Um, and that only comes with experience. So the more you get on the air, the more fun you're going to have, the more different experiences you'll be able to pull from. So I, I hope uh, some of you are inspired to do that. All right, folks, we've been talking to Marty Wall, November 6th, Victor, India, uh, again, about de-expeditions and everything that goes along with that and how you can get involved. Marty, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Marty Wall, November 6th, Victor, India with KF7 IJZ, my buddy Jeremy. Guys, thank you so much for making episode 34 awesome. And uh, that's right, we're the Photime Podcast. Find us online, photimepodcast.com. And there'll be show notes there listing all that Jeremy and Marty chatted about. And uh, there's some other things here. There's a Patreon link. If you'd like to join with partnering with the show, you can click on that. Uh, make sure you check out our new Friends of Photime podcast Facebook group page. Wow, that's a mouthful. How about uh, our new group page on Facebook called Friends of the Photime podcast? Either way, come check it out. There's a lot of conversation going on in there. We appreciate you guys getting connected. Hey, it's not just Facebook. It's also Google+. It's Twitter. It's email. Uh, you can comment on the page uh, right there at the top or the comment tabs. We're everywhere, and we're wanting to connect with you wherever you are in the amateur radio hobby. We appreciate you giving us this time. We hope that uh, we've entertained you and educated you as well. And we sincerely hope that you'll be back the next time we do a show in about two weeks. So, you know, you get bored. We've got 35 other shows to listen to. So go check them out as well. We appreciate you guys coming in. If you like the show and you want to leave a comment uh, on the uh, iTunes or wherever you're listening to the program, that'd be great. Review the program. We'd love to hear back from you. It's always awesome to get feedback, good and bad, and uh, get some direction on where you're wanting to go with the program. All right. I'm going to roll out of here. But, guys, thank you again for being a part of the Photon Podcast. We'll catch you next time. 73, y'all. God bless. 
Thanks for downloading, listening, and subscribing to AmateurRadio15.com presents Photime, the other ham radio podcast. You can find our past episodes, web links, and more at AmateurRadio15.com. That's AmateurRadio15.com. Follow us on Twitter at Photime Podcast. And remember to visit our show sponsor, Main Trading Company, at MTCRadio.com. Till next time, 73s.